Chapter 17 of The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter 17 Burton Declines. The professor cleared his throat. In the first place, Mr. Burton, he said, I feel that I owe you an apology. I have taken a great liberty. Mr. Bomford here is one of my oldest and most intimate friends. I have spoken to him of the manuscript you brought me to translate. I have told him your story. Mr. Bomford scratched his side-whiskers and nodded patronizingly. It is a very remarkable story, he declared. A very remarkable story indeed. I can assure you, Mr. Mr. Burton, that I never listened to anything so amazing. If anyone else except my old friend here had told me of it, I should have laughed. I should have dismissed the whole thing at once as incredible and preposterous. Even now I must admit that I find it almost impossible to accept the story in its entirety. Burton looked him coldly in the eyes. Mr. Bomford did not please him. The story is perfectly true, he said. There is not the slightest necessity for you to believe it. In fact, so far as I am concerned, it does not matter in the least whether you do or not. Mr. Burton, the professor interposed, I beg that you will not misunderstand Mr. Bomford. His is not a militant disbelief. It is simply a case of suspended judgment. In the meantime, assuming the truth of what you have told us, and I, for one, you must remember, Mr. Burton, have every faith in your story, assuming its truth, Mr. Bomford has made a most interesting proposition. Burton, with half-closed eyes, was listening to the singing of a thrush and watching the sunshine creep through the dark foliage of the cedar trees. He was only slightly interested. A proposition, he murmured. Precisely, Mr. Cowper assented. We have an appeal to make to you, an appeal on behalf of science, an appeal on behalf of your fellow creatures, an appeal on behalf of yourself. Your amazing experience is one which should be analysed and given to the world. What you want, I suppose, Burton remarked, is one of my beans. Exactly, the professor admitted eagerly. I have already, Burton said, done my best to make you understand my feelings in this matter. Those beans represent everything to me. Nothing would induce me to part with a single one. We can understand that, the professor agreed. We are approaching you with regard to them in an altogether different manner. Mr. Bomford is a man of business. It is our wish to make you an offer. You mean that you would like to buy one? Precisely, the professor replied. We are prepared to give you, between us, a thousand pounds for one of those beans. Burton shook his head. The conversation appeared to be totally devoid of interest to him. A thousand pounds, he said, is, I suppose, a great deal of money. I have never owned so much in my life. But money, after all, is only valuable for what it can buy. Each one of my beans means two months, perhaps more, of real life. No money could buy that. My young friend, the professor insisted solemnly, you are looking at this matter from a selfish point of view. Experiences such as you have passed through belong to the world. You are merely the agent, the fortunate medium, through which they have materialized. Burton shrugged his shoulders. So far, he replied, I owe no debt to humanity. The longer I live and the wiser I get, the more I realize the absolute importance of self-care. Individualism is the only real and logical creed. No one else looks after your interests. No one else in the world save yourself is of any real account. A thousand pounds, Mr. Bomford interposed, is a great deal of money for a young man in your position. 
It is a very great deal, Burton admitted, but what you and Mr. Cowper both seem to forget is the very small part that money plays in the acquisition of real happiness. Money will not buy the joy which makes life worth living. It will not buy the power to appreciate, the power to discriminate. It will not buy taste or the finer feeling, without the possession of which one becomes adult, a thing that creeps about the face of the world. I thank you for your offer, Professor and Mr. Bomford, but I have nothing to sell. If you would excuse me. He half rose from his chair, but Mr. Cowper thrust him back again. We have not finished yet, my dear Mr. Burton, he said eagerly. You are making up your mind too hastily. A thousand pounds, Mr. Bomford repeated condescendingly, is a very useful sum. Those peculiar gifts of yours may vanish. Take the advice of a business man. Remember that you will still have two or three beans left. It is only one we ask for. I want to put the matter on as broad a basis as possible. We make our appeal on behalf of the case of science. You must not refuse us. Burton rose to his feet determinedly. Not only do I refuse, he said, but it is not a matter which I am inclined to discuss any longer. I am sorry if you are disappointed, but my story was really told to Mr. Cowper here in confidence. He left them both sitting there. He found Edith in the corner of the long drawing room. She was pretending to read. "'Whatever is the matter?' she asked. "'I did not expect you so soon. "'I thought that Mr. Bomford and father wanted to talk to you.' "'So they did,' he replied. "'They made me a foolish offer. "'It was Mr. Bomford's idea, I am sure, not your father's. "'I am tired, Edith. Come and walk with me.' "'She glanced out of the window. "'I think,' she said demurely, "'that I am expected to go for a ride with Mr. Bomford.' "'Then please disappoint him,' he pleaded. I do not like your friend, Mr. Bomford. He is an egotistical and ignorant person. We will go across the moors. We will climb our little hill. Perhaps we might even wait there until the sunset. I am quite sure, she said decidedly, that Mr. Bomford would not like that. What does it matter, he answered. A man like Mr. Bomford has no right to have any authority over you at all. You are of a different clay. I am sure that you will never marry him. If you will not walk with me, I shall work, and I am not in the humour for work. I shall probably spoil one of my best chapters. She rose to her feet. In the interests of your novel, she murmured. Come, only we had better go out by the back door. Like children, they stole out of the house. They climbed the rolling moorland till they reached the hill on the further side of the valley. She sat down, breathless, with her back against the trunk of a small scotch fir. Burton threw himself onto the ground by her side. We think too much always of consequences, he said. After this evening, what does anything matter? The gorse is a flaming yellow. Do you see how it looks like a field of gold there in the distance? Only the haze separates it from the blue sky. Look down where I am pointing, Edith. It was there by the side of the road that I first looked into the garden and saw you. It was not you who looked, she objected, shaking her head. It was the other man. What part is it that survives? he asked a little bitterly. Why should the new man be cursed with memory? Don't you think that even then there must have been two of me, one struggling against the other, one seeking for the big things, one laying hold of the lower? We are all like that, Edith. Even now I sometimes feel the tug, although it leads in other directions. To Garden Green, she murmured. Never that, he answered fiercely, and you know it. There are lower heights, though, in the most cultured of lives. There are moments of madness. Moments that carry one off one's feet, which come alike to the slave and his master. Dear Edith, up here one can talk. 
It is such a beautiful world. One can open one's eyes, one can breathe, one can look around him. It is the joy of simple things, the real true joy of life which beats in our veins. Do you think that we were made for unhappiness in such a world, Edith? No, she whispered faintly. There isn't anything so beautiful to me upon God's earth, he continued, as the love in my heart for you. I wanted to tell you so this evening. I have brought you here to tell you so, to this particular spot. Something tells me that it may be almost our last chance. I left those two whispering upon the lawn. What is it they are planning, I wonder? That man Bomford is no companion for your father. He has given him an idea about me and my story. What is it, I wonder, to rob me, to throw me out, to take my treasure from me by force? You are my father's guest, she reminded him softly. He will not forget it. There are greater things in the world, he went on, than the obligations of hospitality. There are tides which sweep away the landmarks of nature herself. Your father is thirsty for knowledge. This man Bomford is his friend. There have been more crimes committed in the world for lofty motives than one hears of. He leaned a little forward. They could see the smoke curling up from the house below, its gardens laid out like patchwork, the low house itself covered with creepers. It was an idol that, he went on, Bomford's trail is about the place now, the trail of some poisonous creature. Nothing will ever be the same. I want to remember this last evening. I have looked upon life from the hilltops, and I have looked at it along the level ways, but I have seen nothing in it so beautiful, I have felt nothing in it so wonderful as my love for you. You were a dream to me before, half hidden, only partly realised. Soon you will be a dream to me again. But never, never, dear, since the magic brush painted the blue into the skies, the purple onto the heather, the green onto the grass, the yellow into the gorse, the blue into your eyes, was there any love like mine? She leaned towards him. Her fingers were cold and her voice trembled. You must not, she begged. He smiled as he passed his arm around her. Are we not on the hilltop, dear? he said. You need have no fear. Only tonight I felt that I must say these things to you, even though the passion which they represent remains as ineffective forever as the words themselves. I have a feeling, you know, that after today things will be different. Why should they be? she asked. In any case, your time cannot come yet. Once more he looked down into the valley. Like a little speck along the road, a motor car was crawling along. It is Mr. Bomford, he said. He is coming to look for you. She rose to her feet. Together they stood for a moment, hand in hand, looking down upon the flaming landscape. The fields at their feet were brilliant with colour. In the far distance, the haze of the sea. Their fingers were locked. Mr. Bomford, he sighed, is coming up the hill. Then I think, she said quietly, that we had better go down. End of chapter 17